You're listening to the DC Real Estate Podcast, the podcast where we focus exclusively on all things local to the DMV area. Local investors, local knowledge, local experts. Our journey starts now. Hey, everyone. We're back for another episode of the DC Real Estate Podcast. My name is Russell Brazil. I'm an associate with broker with Arla Real Estate. We're back here with Jack Sadden of DMV Flippers and Ron Gallagher. How are you guys doing? Awesome. Good, good. So this week we're going to talk about uh, getting to the real nitty gritty of Ron's strategy with the rent by the room. Um, there's a lot of very specific details that he uses to implement the strategy um, that have really helped allowed him to optimize the strategy to make the most money. Um, so Maybe we should talk about first the types of properties that you're targeting for this. Yeah. So, I mean, you're looking for like big bedrooms. So like my search criteria for the MLS is always, well, you first, you got to figure out what is the number of unrelated adults you can have in your jurisdiction in DC at six. So I look for like four or five bedrooms in DC, you know, it has to have a minimum of four bedrooms and that will um, open up you know, I wouldn't buy a four bedroom place. I'd buy a place that has six bedrooms, but typically the four bedrooms, they'll have a back porch room. They'll have a dining room or something else that you can, t- one or two other rooms that are, uh, you know, potential bedrooms that you can, you know, rooms that you can convert into a bedroom. You need a closet and a window. Is that correct? Or I mean, that's what it is for a legal official bedroom. Like if you were going to try to sell one of your mm-hmm. flips, you couldn't say, you know, just a back porch room without um, a closet is a is a bedroom. So but. actually, the code calls for a closet or room for a dresser. It needs one or the other. It doesn't need both. It needs 70 square feet, uh, egress window, and seven-foot ceilings. And that's, I believe, both for selling but also for renting. Is that correct? Correct. But I'm not renting, you know, if I, if I rent out the a dining room, it doesn't have a closet. Well, in that case, it's still a legal bedroom because it has room for a dresser. It doesn't need both. As long as you have the egress window out, out the back of the house. Now, what I do do now, so a lot, so a lot of those, you know, a handful of my rooms are converted bedrooms or they were previously mm-hmm. a, a porch or a, or a dining room yeah. or a living room. Um, you know, sometimes you want to convert the living room into the bedroom because the dining room is more in towards the interior of the house and doesn't have windows. So sometimes the the living room is the better option okay. and you leave the dining room as the common area because the common area doesn't have to have windows. Correct. So, um, but what I'll do, what, what I've been doing lately is um, my handyman, one of his strengths is drywall, con- wood construction, painting, things like that. Oh, carpentry. So, for, yeah. So for like, um, you know, but like electrical work and plumbing, he's not so great at. But so let's work to his strengths. And for, you know, like $200, he'll erect a, a closet. So you just pick a corner of the dining room and have him put up, you know, there's already going to be the wall there on one side. So all he's really doing is, you know, building one little wall, Build that wall. and and then putting a hanging rod there and maybe a shelf above the hanging rod. And, and there's a closet. And people do seem to react to closets. Like the feedback I get when I try to rent out those rooms that I've converted into bedrooms that weren't previously bedrooms or never intended to be a bedroom. 
I have had a lot of feedback where someone says, well, it doesn't have a closet or I need a big closet or whatever. And my solution in the past has been just get one of those wardrobes that, you know, you put together with the rods and the, that's actually actually really interesting. What are things that you find other than closets that make people, the booms more appealing to people? Um, you find other stuff. I mean, definitely the size of the room. Size. Um, you know, people want a desk because everyone's working from home now. People, so people want room for a desk. Um, yeah, so definitely the size of it, you know, because in D.C., some of the bedrooms, especially in like a traditional row house in Northwest, there's that three-bedroom configuration where mm-hmm. that third room is always staged with a crib, like I say in the pictures, because you couldn't even fit a twin-size bed in there because there's no way with the doors opening and stuff that you could fit anything but a crib in there. So a lot of times those rooms become like glorified closets, and luckily a lot of those houses have – with that three bedroom configuration with a tiny crew room, have that back porch. Maybe it hasn't been drywalled in yet, but it's that screened in back porch. All you do is take the screens out, put in drywall, and then you have that back porch room that what I've done is I've given the, the bigger bedroom, one third of the back porch. And then this, that small crew room gets two thirds of the back porch room. And then, so what I'm renting is really two rooms, like a sitting room, and a bedroom and some people can put their desk and that other room, that secondary room, the back porch room can be their work room, their office. And then their bedroom is the, you know, is the bedroom part. So we're looking for four bedrooms, typically Uh, four bedrooms and and the ability to add extra bedrooms. Right. So if I'm looking at a four bedroom and I look at the listing and I see in the pictures that it, really is a four bedroom and there's no potential like the back porch room doesn't exist. Yeah. And, and the, 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 one of the four bedrooms is that tiny crib room that I could never rent out anyway. I don't even know if it's 70 square feet, probably not. They're really small and no one would ever rent that. So um, yeah, it has to be like four bedroom with the opportunity to convert something into two more bedrooms. So the uh, dining room or the living room is always a good choice. Exactly. Basement's always a good choice if there's the ability down there. And we usually need seven foot ceilings down there to add a basement down there or add a bedroom in the basement. And if you have like a basement that's not a two unit, which is going to be more the most common situation yeah. that you're going to have a basement in D.C. with interconnect stairs. So one thing that I was kind of short sighted in the past where. I would just kind of try to convert the basement into like a one bedroom apartment or something. But if, um, if your bed, if your basement is just like the wet bar and it's really not conducive to, to putting it into a one bedroom, look for the basement. You can sometimes cram two, three bedrooms in the basement. Yeah. So, because the basement doesn't need a, if you have the interconnect stairs, the basement doesn't really need a common area. So this is a common area upstairs. This is a common area upstairs. So basically gives you the whole footprint of the the bottom level of the house. So that's something I learned from the one of the sellers that sold me a place is that he had three bedrooms in the basement. And I was like, oh, how clever. You took the right by the room strategy and even took it even further than I did. I wasn't thinking of like how many rooms can I cram into the basement, but he knocked down walls, 
get rid of a common area and, you know, has three, three bedrooms in the basement. Now, one thing I think that's been really interesting in the way you've optimized these properties is we've bought now multiple properties where the landlord was just paying the utilities. Um, that's obviously a large cost, but you don't, you don't do that. So what's your, what's your strategy with the utilities? So everyone that um, we've bought from was previously not building back the utilities and the excuse was always, Oh, I don't want to be bothered with that or whatever, but it takes me like, you know, 10 minutes a month to build back the utilities. So what it's pretty simple. I just keep a spreadsheet and what I do is I go in, you know, all the, all the bills are posted by like the middle of the month for the previous month. And then I add up all the bills and divide by the number of people in the house, you know, six or whatever it is. And then bill, you know, divide, divide the total by six and then bill it back to them. And how I bill it back to them is I previously was using cozy. Now it's apartments.com and apartments.com allows you to add a bill, like a one-time fee to your, your, your tenant's ledger. So I just add it, um, to each for each tenant once a month takes me about 10 minutes. They get an email saying there's a new bill. They have to manually go in and make the payment because it's a variable amount every month. And then that's it. No one's complaining. Do you ever have issues if if you have multiple tenants all getting billed evenly and one of them's using a lot more electricity or water or something than the other ones? It's never come up. I mean, if the electricity bill ever got high or whatever, you know, I mention it to them. Someone's running a Bitcoin mining uh, <laughs> out of their... Uh, out of one of your homes. I mean, if someone was doing that or whatever, it would. I mean, it'd probably be you. Uh, yeah, <laughs> probably be. but it would. You know, if the if the if the if one of the bills gets a little too high or whatever, you know, I would just like during during the lockdown for the pandemic. You know, people were home, so people were consuming more electricity and things like that. So the electricity bill got up to like to the point where it was like a hundred and five dollars per person. Was That's pretty the, high. That's pretty high. And I just said, you guys are paying it, so I don't care if you're happy with what's going on. But um, you know, just be, be aware, aware that yeah. this is the highest it's ever been. And if there's any sort of like energy savings that you could do, like if you just left the lights on and all, you know, in the house all the time because you just said, oh, who cares? You know, maybe you'd be a little more conscientious about it. So, but they pay it, so I really don't care if they, you know. Now, one question I have is, I know when you bought the house in College Park, mm-hmm. the previous owner actually had um, this thing locked over the thermostat. Um, did you keep that? And do you have that at the other properties or no? Yeah. So all the properties have a lock over the thermostat or okay. have a Nest thermostat that you can lock with the app. Um, I did lock it previously, mm-hmm. but after the pandemic happened, I didn't want to be going to these houses and unlocking it and switching it from heat to cool or, or, or adjusting the temperature because someone said it was too hot. So during the pandemic, I unlocked the thermostats and just said, you know, have at it. You guys are paying the utilities, but you guys adjust it as you need to, because I'm not trying to go into these crowded houses and getting COVID. Yeah. So, um, so one thing I think that's sort of interesting with part of your strategy is, so when the house is vacant and you're getting all new tenants is the pricing, the pricing strategy you use on each room, but also the pricing strategy that you use on the lengths of the lease, um, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. So um, when a tenant tells me they're moving out, I'll take it as an opportunity to raise rent. Typically, I don't raise rent on 
a current tenant, if they're going to renew the lease, they can just, let's just keep status quo. Let's keep, you know, let's not, you know, rustle any feathers, ruffle any feathers or whatever. Let's just, you know, leave it alone. So I look at a, at a, at least prior to the pandemic when my vacancy was like 0%, um, I would be kind of happy that a tenant was telling me they were going to move out because that's a chance for me to increase the rent. Yeah. So, um, like those tenants I inherited in college park, they're still paying like $800 for a studio. Oh man. But can I raise the rent on a 92 year old man? You know, like what am I going to do? Raise the rent to market rent. You know, it's an extra $200, whatever for me, <laughs> the but, cost you know, would be, but it makes a huge <sighs> impact on his life. And so I, I try not to say, like I said, I try not to raise it on my current tenants, but I look, so I'll look at the, you know, I'll go on uh, Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace and I'll kind of do my own little like what's the current market rent for a, a, a bedroom in Petworth or wherever. Yeah. And, you know, and then I'll look, you know, it has to be around the same size and the house needs to be nice. I try to keep my rentals a little nicer, like mm. so they show nicer so that at any point. If a tenant tells me they're moving out, it's the house is kind of like show ready. My houses show really well, like yeah. the 14th Street house with the bamboo, Brazilian bamboo wood floors that glisten and what, you know, I, they, they show really nicely. I have an interesting question for you. Would you ever, um, as you get older and, you know, presumably more money coming in, rent by the rooms, obviously a lot, very intensive. Would you ever consider obviously less profitable, but never turning any of these into single family rentals. Yeah. I mean, so like the, uh, so, so what's the prime, what was the primary goal in the beginning? It was to make enough money so I could double what I was making at my government job and then quit the government job and retire and live off of my rentals. So maybe five years from now when rents have increased and whatever, then maybe I can say, okay, Let's turn this back into like a five bedroom house. Let's give the dining room back as a di- let's make the dining room back into a dining room. Let me rent it out to a group of friends or a family. And, you know, you're not going to get as much rent that way. But if rents have increased, maybe I'm closer to that. Uh, you know, like let's say market rent for a four bedroom is in Petworth is four thousand four thousand. And I'm getting more like five or six thousand with the rent by the room. Mm-hmm. You know, with rental increase, maybe now uh, the the market rent is five thousand, and the delta isn't so big anymore. Right, right. And then I can hire a property manager because there's no property manager that's going to manage these no. rent by the rooms. That's one of the number one questions I get from people: who's going to manage the property? I'm like, well, you are. If you're and even if you strategy. get a property manager, I don't think. I Most had a property pro- managers are capable of handling it. I had a property manager before and I was managing the property yeah. managers. Yeah. Like it, I was like, what am I even spending money for? Yeah. So the likelihood that you're going to find a good property manager is pretty low. I mean, I think all of us self manage our rentals, right? Yeah. My thought was that at one day I'll be at a run of Russell's meetups. Someone's going to come to me afterwards when we're networking and chatting. They're going to say, can I bring you out for a cup of coffee and pick your brain, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm going to tell them I don't drink coffee, but (laughs) I'm going to have an open house this weekend to rent out one of my rooms. Why don't you come to the open house, see how I operate, and 
I'm just assuming there'll be like a mentee mentor relationship, and maybe I'll groom that person to become my property. Your manager. fatal flaw in this plan was assuming that there'll be meetups again. <laughs> well, or whatever <laughs> we talked about last episode. Um, whatever that was. That may have been. Did you see when this whole plan? Did you imagine a pandemic would happen in the middle of it? Was that one of the things that you factored into your? No, absolutely not. And I <laughs> and I had quit my job just as the pandemic was starting. So I've never been financially free and retired when there wasn't a global pandemic. So it's probably not very fun to be financially free and retired. Uh, during the global pandemic. It is not how I predicted my retirement would be. (laughs) And this strategy did become a little hard to implement during the pandemic, right? Yeah. um, You know, like I said previously, I had zero vacancies net. There was a point during the pandemic where I had 12 vacancies. Out Um, of how many? I don't know how many rooms I have. but 50 or something like that? Yeah, something like that. But it it was, you know, 12 versus onesie, twosie. And... Always. And that's, that's $10,000 a month. Yeah. And before the pandemic, like I said, when I was at zero vacancy, if someone told me they were moving out, I would hold one or two open houses on a weekend and fill it. And, you know, it took nothing to fill it. And it's starting. It's not, you know, it's, it's ever since like July was like the turning point. July of 2021 was the turning point. And right now it's not too hard to fill vacancies, but there was that. One Period. year stretch. Oh my god! From mid twenty twenty to mid twenty, it was horrible. And then on top of the vacancies was also I never had deadbeat tenants before. I never had tenants that didn't pay, and then I had like five tenants that weren't paying. Now some of them I've gotten money through like a rental assistance programs. Um, some tenants have paid up. Some tenants just left in the middle of their lease and moved to Alaska <laughs> and stuck me with the bill. But um, you know. I'll take them to court or whatever. I, yeah, whatever. so definitely a challenging time during COVID implementing the so strategy. So challenging. Um, but let's go back to your pricing strategy. So you're pricing them a little in line with what they're doing. But one of the things I, I like that you do is every room is priced slightly different from the other one, which I think is an interesting, right, uh, just an interesting strategy, right? They could be two exact rooms, but you're pricing them at least slightly different. Mostly based on square footage of the room. Yeah. And like if the room has a beautiful bay window, then okay, maybe that's a little bit more. Um, but yeah, it's most of the size of the room and kind of experience. You know, all this stuff is kind of nuanced, right? Yeah. Like, so if I know that people have in the past paid $850 for a room and I've had no problems filling it in the past for $850, then you know, I'll take that into consideration. Like I shouldn't ever have to drop the rent for that room lower than 850. Another thing I found too, is that I'd rather kind of hold out for, and this is maybe to my own detriment, you know, how there's like kind of two philosophies. One, keep lowering the rent because you just got to get someone in there and someone will rent it for $500 or whatever. And then that's $500 coming in versus zero. But I find at least in DC, when you start dropping the room below 800, especially below 700, your tenant pool, the people that apply, have 500 credit score. Like people self exclude themselves. People know, you know, if, if they're doing their search criteria and it's below 800 and you show up in their search results, then you just don't find the same high quality tenants. I find like $800 is the is the the line and if i keep my rents above eight hundred dollars i tend to attract 
higher quality tenants with high credit scores. When I lowered during the pandemic my rents to get people in the rooms, I found... You moved into a totally different tenant class. And I never had to deal with that before. Like I never got tenant screening reports where there were five car repossessions on the, you know, I never saw reports like that. I never saw credit scores in the five hundreds and things like that. But how I dealt with it is I, during the pandemic, I was desperate. So I did take on some of those low credit score people. But what I did is I signed them to what I call starter leases. Let's sign a three month lease. If I get their security deposit, which I collect as the equivalent of one month's rent. So then I've got first month's rent security deposit. So the worst case scenario is I might lose the third month's rent. Like they might not be able to yeah. pay rent for month number three. Cause I'm considering the security deposit for rent number two for month number two. So it's a try before you buy, like before you commit, like we're both trying each other on, maybe they find out that they don't like living there or whatever. So they get to try it, see how the roommates are, see how the property is, whatever see how I am as a landlord, see how they get along. So they get to try it without a long-term commitment over three months. And I get to try them as a, on as a tenant. If they pay me all three months on time, then I say, okay, now that it's like a probationary period. And now that things are going good, okay, I tell them I'm more comfortable with a six-month lease for the next lease. Or if things didn't go that well, but they went okay, okay, let's sign another three-month lease. Let's try one more time. And so that seems to have worked out quite well, actually. And because just because some people have a bad credit score, like I remember one tenant, he tried his luck in like New York City and didn't work out well. And he was like, you know, it's, you're going to see on my credit report, it's pretty bad. But everything was centered around like 2016 when he tried to go to New York. And I could see that all the bad stuff happened in 2016. And a lot of people make bad, right? Financial decisions when they're 21, 22. I'd shit credit then. Right. And then, you know, and then he turned out to be a great tenant and he paid me throughout the whole pandemic, even though he wasn't even there. He basically stayed with his mom in Baltimore during the pandemic. Hmm. But he still, even though he wasn't even staying in the room, still paid the tenants the whole time. So he's a great, t- and he he will, he just, you know, a couple months ago was like, hey, I, he moved out. He moved back with his mom, I think, because like, why pay rent? If yeah, you're, makes sense. Like, yeah. He's been staying with his mom the whole time. So he was like, let me just finish, wait out the pandemic at my mom's because what he's been doing anyway. And then I guess it was time to leave his mom's towards the fall when things were looking better pandemic wise. And he was like, Hey, do you have any rooms available or whatever? So again, we're talking about building relationships. You know, I've had several tenants come back to me years later, whatever, maybe it's for themselves. Do you have a room or maybe it's for their friend that's just moving to DC. So, and the other thing too, before we move on from bad credit, bad tenants, um, the other way you can kind of protect yourself as far as risk mitigation, as far as, you know, the tenant's ability to pay rent is, Ask them if they have a co-signer, you know, can your parents co-sign for you or whatever. And oftentimes the parent or whatever is willing to do it. So that's the other way. If someone's got a 500 credit score and times are tough and there's a pandemic going on and you've had a room that's been vacant and you're just trying to get someone in there, do the three month starter lease and try to see if they can get a co-signer. So on the idea of the starter lease, going back to also your pricing strategy, you also price your rooms based on how long they're willing to sign a lease for, which I yeah. think is a absolute genius uh, thing to do. So I don't see this on anyone else's listings and I can't do it during the pandemic, but prior to the pandemic, what I would do is because I wasn't dealing with shitty credit scores yeah. before the pandemic. So I was dealing with people with 600s 
credit scores in the 600, 700s. So I felt totally comfortable. You know, incomes, I'd call their job. They had incomes that were more than three times the monthly rent. So I would always want to sign a 12-month lease. But people have different, you know, some people are only in D.C. for six months or whatever. You know, Six-month internship. Right, or, a six-month, yeah. you know, six-month job, you know, whatever, contractor position or whatever. So I understand that that's the case. So what I did prior to the pandemic, I was the market does not allow me to do this during the pandemic. But prior to the pandemic, what I would do was I would charge a premium for a shorter lease. So I will give you a six-month lease, but so I don't have to go out and find another tenant in six months. Uh, I'll charge you $75 more a month. So there's a premium for that. Anything less than six months, like if you wanted a three-month lease, it would be $150 for a month-to-month lease or you know, for the privilege of having a month-to-month lease. So let's say a room is going to be $900 on a one-year lease. You would go to $975 if they did six months. And ten fifty if they did a month less month than lease. six months, right? Three month lease, month to month. And now, one other thing that the pandemic has pro- proven has shown me is I tr- I will not do a month to month lease. I haven't signed a month to month lease since the pandemic. There's no advantage as the landlord for signing a month to month lease. I, I've learned. So they're all minimum three months. They're now. all minimum three months now. Now, when things get back to normal and all my tenants have 700 credit score. I will be, re- I'll reopen the idea of a month to month lease. Maybe I'll ask them to commit to a three month lease, but it will be, if I ever did month to month again, it would definitely be at $150 premium or maybe even higher. And people don't have a problem with that. Like I, I know lots of apartment complexes that do this. You know, if you want a month to month lease, you do pay a premium and you pay a pretty hefty premium for that flexibility to be able to leave, uh, you know, on a 30 day you know notice or whatever. Yeah. So so um, so, yeah, that's and, and I, you know, th- there's a way to increase your gross rents pretty easily. What um, pre pandemic, what what percentage of your tenants would you say? And I know you just kind of guessing sure. here we're doing less than one year leases. There's just a handful, just okay. a couple, maybe like, you know, three or four. Yeah. So not that many, but it gives them the opportunity. You know, I don't want to say no to a tenant that is a has a good credit score, good income. I met them. They're a nice person. They love the house. They love the room. But I don't I want to not make it happen because I'm a stickler for a 12 month lease. Yeah. So this is a way for me to. Okay. And they very may well stay beyond that six months. You know, I had a tenant that was paying the premium. You've actually met her. She came to the meetup. Oh, okay. She was the tenant her. that was interested in real estate, but she was so fixated on like cheaping out. Like she's looking for a $30,000 condo in Southeast. And I'm trying to tell her that's not the market. That's just going to be a headache. You're yeah. going to drive yourself out of real estate investing. But um, she kept... She was that analysis paralysis, whatever. She kept threatening that she was going to move out because she's going to buy a fourplex in Southeast or something. And she just never got around to it. And then she was constantly paying that $150 premium on her on her rent, even though she stayed for like a year. But she paid for the flexibility to leave on a moment's notice or at least, you know, 30 days notice. Um, but she just never exercised that, that privilege. 
But so how how long did she stay on the month to month premium? I would say around a year. Year. Yeah. So if she could have just signed the year lease. She could have just signed a year lease, but that wasn't in her plans. Yeah. You know, her plan was that she was going to buy a place in Southeast and become a landlord and be a successful real estate investor and blah, blah, blah. And despite me trying to help her, bringing her to your real estate meetup and introducing her to you and me telling her, this is what I do. You should just mimic what I'm doing. Don't, you know, because people get in the idea that like, I'll just start, start small and I'll start cheap. But starting cheap is like when you bought your couple of properties in Oxon Hill or whatever, you know, you think you're doing the right thing by starting slow and starting cheap. But really, there's a big advantage in getting an $800,000 row house and starting with that appreciation, easy ease of renting it out, you know, like. And she was just a small little girl, like higher quality tenants. I mean, just like a small little girl trying to hold open houses and you know, like a fourplex and, you know, some of the worst parts of the city, not, you know, again, not advisable. Um, so, um, it's not my, uh, at some point you started doing maid service on, um, your properties. Um, what, what prompted that? And then, and you're billing the maid service back to the tenants, which I think is a, Good idea, just as part of the utilities. Yeah, so I don't remember why I did it, but um, I'm glad I did. I'm glad I thought of it because it makes so much sense. It costs me nothing because it's all part. It's just another utility bill. So that 105 that I was talking about that happened that one month at one of my properties. That 105 was their portion of the utilities. That includes the maid service, which the maid service isn't cheap. So the maid service is about. You know, for like a bigger house, it's two hundred fifty dollars. Divide that by six. You know, I mean, it's a significant. It's thirty something dollars per person. So, if you took the maid service out of the utilities for the month, their utilities that month would have been you know what eighty five, seventy five, whatever it is. So you know, and that sounds more reasonable. So the utility, so the utilities is. Significantly higher for all of my properties because it includes maid service. But it costs me nothing as the landlord. Like I was saying before about having that property always showroom ready, always ready to show in case a tenant, you know, decides to move out and I have to hold an open house next weekend. And the tenants have the option, too, of of getting the maid service in their room if they want, right? Uh, Yeah, I mean... My understanding is the maid service I use, they're not in the business of opening closed doors because who knows what you'll find. <laughs> Dead body. But my experience has been that the maid service, while they're there, if you left your bedroom door open, they'll go into the room, sweep the floors, vacuum, um, make the bed. Sometimes my tenants were like, oh, I left my door open and I came home and my bed was made. It was like I was living in a hotel. <laughs> so I just kind of incur, you know, the, the, the maid service always comes the same time. You know, it's the third Friday of the month or whatever. So the tenants get to know when the, ten- when, the, when the cleaning service is coming. And I just tell them, if you want your room to be cleaned, then, you know, leave your door open. And I do the same thing if I have a vacancy and someone's moved out. I'll, make, I'll tell the tenants make sure you leave the door open to the vacant room because I want the cleaning service to come in there and clean it. So speaking of um, that, uh, what, so you buy your own beds and mattresses? Is that? So some of the properties that I've 
purchased. I inherited the tenants, and I also inherited a bunch of bed frames and mattresses and because bed, bed, bed bugs too. Well, no, please don't put that out there because I, luckily I've never no, had to deal I'm with that. Totally I, I've had it I'm once. Totally it's terrible. Those who are I mean, because I, I, that would be a thing where the tenants are going to want me to pay for it. Like, like I said, I had a tenant that had some skin problem once and um, he's sending me pictures of his elbows and his <laughs> arms with rashes on it. And I'm like, he's blaming the he's blaming me. Like you have eczema. He said that some some friend of his said that spiders can live in the walls and he's blaming the walls. And he's like, I think we need to have hire an exterminator and whatever. And I was like, no, I think the first step is you go to a dermatologist. Like the first the first step in your medical problems shouldn't be. What did my landlord do to cause this? You know, <laughs> you a heart so, attack. It's like, oh, it was really, uh, it was really something in the air. It's just so strange. Here I am as a landlord, and I'm getting pictures of some, you know, rash on some tenant's arm. Maybe you should have like typed this, this stuff into WebMD, and you could have diagnosed it. Well, I just told Google them, reverse reverse image search. I just told them I'm I'm not aware of any spiders that live in the walls. <laughs> so like, and this is just this is what dry skin looks like. You could, have you ever heard of moisturizer? <laughs> and if and if it lived in the walls, wouldn't it affect other tenants in the house? Like you know what I mean? Like how come you're the only one with this rash? So just weird. It's but not, it's not my fault you have uh, skin problems, right? So again, t- call your dermatologist first, not me. You know, like. But anyway, um, <laughs> wait. Th- th- maybe that's side hustle. Could you become a licensed dermatologist? Well, and then people complain. As a landlord, I feel you. like I have to be everything. Like I have to. Back to I, I, I I always say this. I have to do everyone's job. So, like, it took me forever to find a quality exterminator, a quality pest control person, and so I had to learn about you know all the stuff, all the nuances of being a exterminator. I I've got a when I didn't use my um, go to lender when we didn't use Joseph. I had to use a different lender, and I had to be the one that walked them through the loan office. So I had to be a loan officer. Are you like Leon in that episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm, where he's the, the house, house husband, husband? The house husband. I just feel like I have to do. <laughs> I just feel like I have to do everyone else's job. That was that was Leon, though. And then if anyone watches Curb Your Enthusiasm, we'll get that. So, um, but back to the beds and the mattresses. So I inherited a bunch of beds and and bed frames. So what I do is, some people are adamant about bringing their own beds and they want the room completely vacant and they don't want any furniture. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes they are like, you know, I'm just moving from college and I don't have any furniture. So I would love to have a bed and a desk and whatever. So typically what I do is I like the, one of the properties I bought, the previous owner had all the leases set to expire at the end of May. (laughs) And that's, Part of the reason why I had 12 vacancies all at once because five leases were coming up during. And they all left. Right. And and five people left. So um, so I just would say when when I was showing the rooms to people, I would just say you're going to see in some rooms have a desk. Some rooms have a bed. Some rooms don't. Some rooms have a mattress, whatever. I just said we'll move the furniture around based on people's needs. And then like. I think a, I think all the furniture was claimed or whatever, except for like a desk, and we just moved it out to the common area. Yeah. And then um, if no one claims it after like a week or two, if no one wants it, then I you know call my handyman and I say haul it to the dump. Yeah. Um, if someone doesn't need a mattress or a bed frame, I buy those. Um, you can get them on sale for fifty dollars. Those metal bed frames that you can just kind of fold up 
a couple bolts to undo it. You fold them up. You throw it into storage until you get the next tenant next year that says, I'd really like a bed. Okay, Because no a lot problem. of these tenants are transient, right? They are just drove to t- town with whatever they could fit in their car and they have no furniture. They just have their clothes and their laptop and that's really it. And so a lot of them love the idea of having the bed and not and, having to go out and buy that. It's already there. It makes their life them. makes their life easier, um, which leads to more applications for your rooms. Right. And then there's the. So I employ both strategies. Uh, I, I say it's your choice. Like I'll move the bed out if you don't want it. Or, you know, if you don't have a bed, I bet I have one in storage or I can find one for you. Yep. So I'll provide it. And if, and if they want a bed and they don't have it and I don't have one in storage, you can go online for $150. You can buy a bed in a box that the mattress, you know, comes all shrink wrapped or whatever. And you open it up. It's 150 bucks for a full size bed. Full size is the way to go because it looks big. But it's not as big as a queen, so you get a couple extra inches as far as the perception of the room size. And um, if you have full-size bed frames and full-size mattresses, then you can mix and match and whatever. Like if a mattress gets old, you throw the mattress away and then you know you buy the new one because you didn't have any in storage for the tenant. I'll pay $150 if someone is going to sign a 12-month lease. You know, If you're going to sign a month-to-month lease, okay, maybe I won't buy a bed for you. But if you're going to, you know, if I, if I'm out of beds, I'll buy, I'll pay $150. Cause then I'll, then I know I have that newer mattress and I'll just rotate out an old mattress. And then you have the bed for the next time that someone else needs it. Right. Exactly. And then I, and if I have too many mattresses at that point, then I get rid of the oldest mattress. You know what I mean? You just kind of rotate. I like that. We learned this strategy specifically from Phil, who we bought a property from because he had been implementing that for years. So Phil had the strategy. Phil is the person that I bought one of my rentals from. He has the strategy. He provided a TV, I think a a 32 inch TV, a a bed and a desk and obviously in a mattress. So, um, and that was his idea. And that's where I inherited a lot of furniture. Then you have Alan, who's the person that sold me the property in College Park. His philosophy is provide no furniture, provide nothing. And when I asked him why he did that or why that was his, you know, his thought process, he said, because no one skips out on you. They'll be less likely to skip out on you in the middle of the night if they have to haul their bed away and their king size bed frame and they're, you know, like, and it probably makes it more like them to stay long term. Like it's a pain in the ass to move your stuff. Right. Exactly. So that's a good point. Cause I've, I've had midnight move outs. Yeah. And so have I. So, um, but in this case, they just left all the junk for me to, to deal with. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so you can see it both ways, but I'm doing it both ways. You know what I mean? Like, and my tenants in DC are very transient anyway. It's very rare that in the DC rent by the room thing that I have someone for over two or three years. That's it's, you know, probably one year, two years is typical. Cause then they're going to graduate. They're going to work their way up. Like I had a tenant the other day call me and he's like, I'm super happy with my room. Uh, you know, I'm not saying I'm moving, you know, want to move out tomorrow or anything like that, but he has a good relationship with me. And he wants to remain, he's like, I don't want to find a new landlord, but he's doing well in his job. He got a raise and he's like, maybe I could afford a room now that has an, 
ensuite bathroom or a little bit bigger or whatever. So he's like, just I'm just putting a little thought into your head. So when there's a vacancy comes up, he's just looking to improve. Yeah. So, you know, when the attic room that has its own private bathroom comes up on the market because that person moves out, you know, I'll give him a call and I'll just say, hey, you know, are you looking to, you know, I'll come show you that room or whatever. That room's pretty sweet, too. Yeah. You were saying it's the pick of the. Pick I, of the I would house, live in that but, room. So, um, so yeah, so, you know, uh, my tenants are pretty transient anyway, especially in DC. So I don't, I don't really mind providing the bed because they're going to skip out on me either way. But typically, like I said, prior to the pandemic, I didn't have scumbag tenants that would skip out on me. So it wasn't really an issue. I had high quality tenants that would agree to pay the lease as signed. So is there any other specifics or tips we have in the strategy? Um, I'm trying to think for me, it's all like just, it's all second nature. So I think sort of like the breakdown here of the main points we hit are we're looking for a four bedroom row house that we typically at least four bedroom, you know, start that we can add search criteria, but really you're looking for potential for six bedrooms. So four bedrooms where we can add bedrooms to it. We really want to get to the six, which DC allows five. If we're in Maryland, four in, Virginia strategy does not work doesn't as work well in Virginia. In Virginia. Right. Um, so we really want to maximize the amount of people, get six people in the house. Um, premium locations that are easy to rent out. Um, yes. Columbia Heights has worked out really well for you. Petworth, College Park. Um, you don't have anything in Shaw, but Shaw would be a great market for that. Um, Capitol Hill would be a great market for that. Um, uh, the pricing strategy with charging premiums for shorter term leases. Um, that's a big point. Billing back all utilities to the tenants and then providing beds for them if they, if they need it. So these are all some great, um, great tips on the real nitty gritty and how to implement the rent by the room strategy, which is the strategy that gets you the most money in DC. It's one of, it's one of only two strategies I'm aware of that makes DC cash, cash flow. Yep. So and the yeah. other is probably Section Eight strategy. Section I guess, Eight, I'm right? Sure. And then yeah, you know, hard. Yeah. and Section Eight. I always said this to um, what's his name? Who's this? Joe. Joe. I always said to Doctor Joe, "Do you have any fear that because all his fear, his uh, strategy totally rests on the government continuing to pay this premium? I don't think they've ever lowered Section Eight rates, lowered them in history of Section Eight. I think that it's not Section Eight. HUD hasn't, but." How Joe makes his money with the Section 8 strategy is that it only works when DC, it only works in DC. So when he goes on bigger pockets and he's talking about this strategy, it doesn't work. Right. Yeah, there are markets that it does. I think I have a friend in Hagerstown who there may be, I don't know whether it work, but they do pay a premium there over market. Okay. You know so it only works in is? jurisdictions where they're paying the premium. It might be like a hundred bucks. Yeah. It's not, it's not, but I'm just, but it's not like no. a $1,500 well, premium. It couldn't be because yeah. no one would pay more than $1,500 in Hagerstown. <laughs> but there could come a day. Where DC government says, because what was the whole idea behind paying a premium to landlords for Section 8 housing? To get the Section 8 housing dispersed amongst the city. So you might have some Section 8 people in Georgetown. You're going to have some Section 8 people in Columbia Heights, whatever. So if it worked, then they're going to continue to do it. But what happens if it didn't work? What happens if no landlords turn their Georgetown properties into Section 8? It's actually more stupid than that. It's not. The reason some of the – where I think where Joe does most of his stuff is literally the way that they've drawn their maps 
is that you have these random neighborhoods that are in more. So like right. Kingman Park right. is considered part of Capitol Hill, yeah, so, which is a much higher oh, area. There are anomalies parts, that you can take advantage of. of. Like when I went to the Riggs Park that are considered Tacoma, there's just the, the way they do the right. maps. Right. Yeah. So Kingman Park is part of the old city tax record, which is just because the way the tax record goes is like the same neighborhoods as downtown DC. Or like Tacoma, there's parts of what I would consider Riggs Park that are Tacoma. Yeah. And in Tacoma, like Tacoma really doesn't make any sense, right? Like it's not anywhere close to market. It's not close to. It doesn't make any sense in Tacoma, but it is what it is there. But I guess well, the idea are, is there are parts of Tacoma Park that are pretty expensive. Parts. I don't know. Tacoma, like the Tacoma tax record neighborhood is pretty small. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's anywhere in Tacoma where you can get 5,500 for a five bedroom rental. But my point is that Joe's strategy hinges on the continuance of this, of funding this program. And they might decide at some point, you know what? It had a good idea that, you know, there was a good idea behind it to try to disperse the the diaspora of, of, uh, you know, section eight people. But if it didn't work out, I don't know what the numbers are. You know what I mean? If, if, if all the section eight houses still continue to be in Southeast or whatever, I mean, I'm and pretty it sure did, they're not going back to Putin slums. I think that, that was, that was, a I mean, or maybe the premium isn't this high, you know, you could, or there's a budget. You could see that if we entered a recession, <coughs> excuse me, and government money is at a premium. Probably, they, they, they might cap. What do they do in the pandemic? Cap. Uh, they might change their mind. Just like they passed the law or whatever to implement this program, it's just as easy that they could withdraw it. So uh, I don't know if it then you adjust, right? So if, if if that were to ever happen, Joe will take these row houses that he bought for $100,000 in Columbia sure, Heights sure. and sell them for $1.3 sure. I'm just saying that there's, a, there's no one... There's no law. There's no I don't I can't envision or I can't see any law change or whatever that would make me not be able to do the rent by the road. They could, could change the occupancy limit. It, it, it is really interesting that the three states here have very different occupancy so limits. Different, it just right. seems so random. It is very random. It kind of uh, makes some sense. The city would have more per. Yeah, but why is why is Virginia four? Four seems so low. Well, it kind of makes sense. I feel like D.C. is the most urban. Montgomery, I agree, it's too low. Montgomery County is definitely more, um, more urban, more urban than, than Northern Virginia. And Northern Virginia, well, I'm, I'm, it's just a suburban hellhole. That whole Virginia <laughs> area. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that, but whatever. So the other little tip I would give, you know, if you're looking for little tips, um, Hulu offers unlimited devices for like twelve dollars more a month. So when I bought the property from Phil, we've been talking about, he had Hulu for the house. So that was their cable provider. So talking about Hulu Live with all the stations and then the Hulu library. Um, And he was paying an extra at the time. It was $10 a month um, for unlimited devices. So now what I've done is Hulu lets you have six profiles. So I've created a profile for each of my properties and... You know, that keeps track of what shows you've watched and whatever. And I give all of my tenants as a value add. All of my tenants have access to Hulu and they can watch it on their phone. They can Chromecast it to the TV or whatever through their phone, but it's unlimited devices. So basically all of my tenants get Hulu for free. So it's I a love, value. I love Hulu Live TV, but it's a value add. app is horrible. It's, have you ever used their their interface? Is so I use bad. it because the interface is so bad. I'm one of the one of the devices that connects to it. So do you, do you find the interface impossible to use? It's so unintuitive. I mean, it's not the best, it's but awful. I mean, I love it. Other than that, it um, it serves the purpose. You know, it gets yeah, the job sure. done. I'm, I'm still just, able to I'm watch like my shows. I'm just like complaining. I I like I like that idea though for 
you know, virtually no cost. Um, right. So for $60 plus 12. So, you know, for $72 a month, it I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting cable and access to the Hulu yeah. library. Cause one of the profiles is Ron. And then the other ones are my properties and they get to, you know, if, if let's say they were on the fence, my property yeah. versus another, you never know if, you know, I mentioned that you get free cable TV with me, free streaming access yeah. to Hulu. And it makes it like you feel good. Like I've had this, like, you know, like, you know, I have a bunch of status at hotels. And so like, I always feel really great when I go there. What they've given me is, you know, you get a free bottle of water when you show up, it costs them a dollar. But I'm like, that's great. Like there's a lot of little things like that, that you do that just make you. You feel good about your experience, you whether or not know. it's costing. You never yeah. know when someone's yeah. like a TV buff or a movie buff. Yeah, like and that's the tipping point to in your favor versus taking a room with someone else. Like I went to a Marriott the other day and they gave me a free bottle of champagne because I'm some gold member. And I'm like, that's great. Now, the champagne was like crappy champagne. It probably cost three bucks. I'm like, that's great. And you probably, are, like, you probably didn't drink it either. Right. So I, high perception it. I drank it. I drank it in my room and I was thinking like this is like some crap champagne. And I'm like, oh, but Marriott's the best. They really care about me. Um well, you it's know. customer service, right? And you you mentioned earlier, um, one of your tenants, you had a good relationship, reached out to you, right? And you said you had a good relationship with them. So it's it's customer service, which we don't see a lot in the landlording business, which is why landlords get a bad name. That's and, what I think Joe's right. really good at. Is yeah. doing, is doing I mean, these are your customers, and that's the way I look at it. So um, You're providing a product. That product is housing. Right. And they're giving you a lot of money for that product. And you talked about the champagne or whatever. You know, another low-cost, high-perception-value thing is to, like, let's say there was some construction in the house and, you know, there was a leaky pipe and they couldn't use one bathroom for two weeks. And, you know, it was a real disruption to them. Ten bucks off their rent. Go to – no, go to Taco Bell. Get the Taco Bell 20 Taco Party Pack or whatever. It's going to cost you – That tw- might put another bathroom out of commission. <laughs> <laughs> right. But at this point, the bathroom's back in commission. So, you know – Or you you know buy three pizzas. You know what I mean? It costs you $30 and – but they love yeah, it. They you know great. what I mean? They, they like – they're like – then they remember, okay, that sucked, but – Ron did make good on it by giving us a little, you know, pizza party or a taco <laughs> pizza party, <laughs> you know, a taco party or whatever. So, so just something like that, it, you know, high perception value. Like you said, the champagne didn't cost the Marriott very much, but you loved it. Yeah, I was like, I'm a big baller here. Even right, I was like, right. Get every guest so, you know, uh, trust me, if you show up with a bag full of Taco Bell or a bunch of pizzas, you know, these people eat it up. So, you know, like literally. a fr- literally. So, yeah, literally. So, like, on a Friday night or whatever, you know, you just say, hey, sorry about the disruption, but, you know, I'm sending over, you know, three pizzas. You know, enjoy. Very cool. Very cool. Awesome. All right. So, we're going to wrap up. Uh, If you guys want to reach out to Jack, myself, or Ron for anything, uh, email us at info at dcrealestatepodcast.com. Thanks for listening to the DC Real Estate Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to contact the hosts, reach out to them at info at dcrealestatepodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you access your podcasts. 